having true faith in Jesus means we love others and serve God. My wife's family says that her grandfather used to say, where there's people, there's problems. And I think many of us would probably agree with that. Where there's people, there's problems. How do we deal with people that have problems? How do we deal with the problems that come from being around people? This is one of our biggest challenges as people. It seems like at times it's impossible. There are too many problems that come from being with people. Maybe some are isolated now and love it and are not looking forward to being back with people because there's problems. Maybe you're isolated with people that you feel like are difficult to deal with, especially after so many days. I'm sure my family feels that way about me. Well, how should we as Christians treat other people? And especially when those other people hurt us, how do we deal with their hurt? And also, how do we view our relationship with God and as we relate to other people? So these are important questions in our passage today, Luke 17, verses 1 to 10, helps us to explain and answer some of these questions of how to treat other people, how to deal with people's problems. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples how to live faithfully to him while also loving other people. Now, just prior to this passage, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. They had spoken words against him, and he was answering them. But now he turns and actually talks to his disciples, those who are following him. So let's look at Luke 17, verse 1 to 10. I'll read it, and you follow along as I read. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Well, this passage today, I believe the main message or the big idea is that having true faith in Jesus means we love others and serve God. Having true faith in Jesus means we love others 
and serve God. I have three points this morning. Number one, loving others. Number two, faith that moves trees. And number three, serving the Lord. So loving others, that's verse one to four. Faith that moves trees, verse five and six. And then serving the Lord is verse seven to 10. So start with number one, point number one, loving others. Verse one says that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So Jesus says we should expect that temptations to sin will come. It is natural that we would be tempted to sin. But he says, woe to the one through whom they come. Woe is a way of saying that things will not go well for this person. Whoever's the target of the woe, bad things are going to come to them. Now, in verse 2, Jesus doesn't say what those bad things are, but he does say that whatever it is, is worse than a millstone being hung around the person's neck and they were thrown into the sea. So it would be better to be drowned with a huge rock around your neck than to tempt someone in sin, to be the source of a temptation to sin. Earlier in Luke, we saw that Jesus used the word woe when speaking to the Pharisees. He says it three times, woe to you Pharisees in Luke 11. And he was talking to them about being, because they were concerned with outward actions, what they were doing on the outside, rather than a repentant heart. And here it talks about little these little ones. It says it would be better for, uh, for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now the little ones is not very specific here, but it seems to refer to anyone who might be tempted to sin by our actions or by the disciples' actions. We know that there was other people listening around as as they were as Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And so as he's pointing to these little ones, this might be others who are interested in Jesus but that are not followers yet. And as we look back through the book of Luke, we can identify some examples of who these little ones are referring to, such as Lazarus, the crippled man who died at the gate of the rich man, just back in chapter 16. The younger son in the prodigal son parable who was starving to death. The little ones are the banquet guests who were brought in from the highways and the hedges, the people far out who were brought in to the feast. The, the man with dropsy or the disabled woman. Both of them were healed on a Sabbath day. They are included in these little ones. And it goes on and on all the way back to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus begins his public ministry by reading from Isaiah in his hometown. Luke chapter 4, 18 to 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So the little ones are the poor, the captives, 
the blind, the oppressed. And it, it could be that they're poor, or captive, or blind in the physical sense, or also in the spiritual sense as well. We see Jesus' concern for these little ones, for those who he cared for. And he wants his people to have that same concern for them as well. That's why he says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Check yourselves. He's telling the disciples to watch out that they're not a stumbling block, that they're not a source of sin for these little ones, for other people. What might it mean to be a, a temptation to sin? I think simply put, we can be a stumbling block or a temptation to sin. When we call something right and okay or good that God has called wrong or evil. So when we say something is okay to do or to say or to take part in, and we do that ourselves and invite others to join us, but God has says that is wrong, then we have become a stumbling block. We are doing what the verse, this verse says not to do. For example, if we as, as Christians, we know that God says do not murder. But if we are supporting and going along with abortion, well, then we are becoming a stumbling block. We're saying something is right or is okay that God has says is wrong, and it being wrong to kill a person. Another example could be 1 Corinthians 6, where it says to flee sexual immorality. But if we watch TV and movies and participate in viewing these things that are full of sexual immorality, then we're saying that it's okay to watch or maybe even think about these things, even though God says that they are wrong. We're not fleeing from them, we're taking part. And as we invite others into that, as we acknowledge that we participate in that, and we, we encourage others to do the same, that we're at risk of being this temptation to sin. Another way that this could come up is from 1 Corinthians 7, where it says that Christians should marry in the Lord. So we become a stumbling block if any of us as Christians enter into or agree with Christians who are marrying unbelievers or heading toward marriage with an unbeliever. We become a stumbling block. We could be this temptation to sin, to say that it's okay, it's right to do this thing that God has says it is wrong to do. So we must check ourselves, like Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Am I doing anything that's encouraging others to do what God has said is wrong? So we love people, we love others by not being a stumbling block. And we also love others in the way we treat them when they do sin against us. Look with me at the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. It says, if, you, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here we see the process of loving others from Jesus, especially related to their sin. 
This process looks like rebuke, repent, forgive, and repeat. Rebuke, repent, forgive, and repeat. Jesus is telling his disciples how to love each other. Just as they should expect temptations to sin to come their way, there's also they should also expect that there's going to be sin against each other in their relationships. They're going to hurt each other. It's bound to happen. But they're to love each other by going through this four-step process of rebuke, repent, forgive, and repeat. So verse 3 says to rebuke the one who has sinned, the, the brother who has sinned. So we rebuke a brother or sister by correcting them or pointing out a flaw in what they've done. But this is done out of love for that person. We want to encourage them to right living. Just as the person tempting others into sin gets the woe from Jesus in verse 1 and 2, we want to be the opposite of that. We want to be encouraging people to live rightly, to follow God's commands. And we do that at times by rebuking someone, bringing to their attention something that appears to be sin in their life. Sometimes we don't see our own sin. We don't realize that what we're doing or saying is hurtful to others. So it's helpful for people to point out to us our blind spots, to, for us to recognize that we are out of step. A rebuke might look something like, Sister, when you sent that text message in the group chat, it was very hurtful and unloving to me. Even if the rebuke does not point to a serious sin, it can still be very real. The hurt can be very real to the person who felt it. Sometimes we hurt people just with careless or even misunderstood words. But they're still real and legitimate. We need to pay attention to them. Now, it's always a gift when we can see our own sin. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the words of a friend. Sorry, faithful are the wounds, not just the words, but the wounds of a friend. This is pointing to it's really good when people point out to us our sin. Now, it's painful. It hurts, but it's really good. It's like stretching muscles after exercising. It hurts so bad, but it's, it's good for us. Now, often we hide from our sin. We want to keep it in the dark, but it truly is a gift when there's light shined on the sin in our lives because it allows us to move to the second step of this process, which is repent. So to repent is to turn from our sin to God for forgiveness and also for change that only he can provide. In verse 4, we see that the offending person is coming to the one to, that repented. The offending person is coming to the one they hurt and saying, I repent. Verse 4, they say, I repent. 
This is a, a admitting that they are wrong, a confession that they have sinned against this person. I think a good way of saying this is to say the words, use the words, I was wrong. I was wrong. You're all on mute, so where you are now, you can practice. Say it with me. I was wrong. I think I heard a few people. Cool. Now, when we say I was wrong, this is important because we're confessing that we were wrong. It's not saying I'm sorry that you were hurt or I'm sorry that you are mad or I'm sorry that you're very sensitive and can't take a joke. No, those are not real apologies. Those are not confessions of sin. Those are not repentance. Uh, those are just words that are really code words for, please get over this quickly. But the words we need to use are, I was wrong. Or we can use the words from this passage, I repent. I was wrong for sending that message without checking with you first. Or I was wrong for sending that message trying to be funny, but without thinking about how you might feel when you read it. That's what it looks like to repent to someone we have sinned against. Now the third step in this process is to forgive. And this is the most difficult of all of them. Because how do we forgive? And really, what is forgiveness? We hear it a lot. We want to be forgiven. We want others to forgive us. But do we really understand it? First, let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay. Because hurt is really not okay. It's not okay when someone hurts us. Forgiveness is not forgetting what happened. I mean, I think we all know it's impossible to forget what has happened. I remember hurtful things people said to me in middle school. I remember where I was standing. I remember where the guy was standing who said them to me. I remember that he's bigger and stronger and better with words than me. I have no way to defend myself. I have not forgotten that. It's impossible to forget the things that hurt us. And forgiveness is not forgetting in that way. Now, forgiveness is trusting God to be just. Trusting God to be just. To be just or justice is to give the right punishment for each offense. Each sin requires punishment. And so for God to be just, each and every sin, every hurt, every bad thing must be punished with the right amount of punishment. The Bible says that God is just and that he will not let any sin go unpunished. And we see from the Bible that there are two ways that sin is punished, that the punishment for sin is given out. The first is that the sinner is punished for all eternity in hell. The sinner, the one who sins, pays the penalty. They are punished for eternity. The alternative to that is God placing on Jesus the punishment for sin 
of the sins of all the people who would believe in him. So everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, their sin was placed on Jesus at the cross where he died under the weight of God's wrath, the weight of God's punishment for sin. So out of these two ways, all of sin for the whole world, for all of time, is paid for in full. Those who believe in Jesus and are saved, their sin, our sin, has been put on Jesus. For all those who do not believe in Jesus, they will pay the punishment for their sin in hell for eternity. So Christian, the punishment that you and I deserve, each and every sin that we've committed or will commit, that punishment was paid for by Jesus on the cross. He took it instead of us. Now, if you're listening, you're not a believer. And you die as an unbeliever, never putting your faith in Jesus. Then the Bible says you will be punished for your sin in hell, a terrible place of torment and fire, and it will be forever. There's no end to the suffering in hell. So friend, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus today while you still have breath, while you still can. It is God's grace that we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ because he took the punishment for sin and he died under that punishment, was buried, and he rose again. And that's what we celebrate today as in Easter. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday when we gather together, the Lord's Day. Now, coming back to forgiveness. When we forgive... We are trusting God to punish the sin of that person rightly. We are trusting God to be just. Forgiveness actually has more to do with trusting God than it does with the person who has hurt us. And if we refuse forgiveness for the other person, or somehow we demand that there be an extra payment by them, We might demand this extra payment by wanting them to suffer some. They hurt us, so now we're going to cut them off from the relationship. Maybe give them the silent treatment. Or maybe we would want to hurt them in some way, even physically at times. Maybe just verbally we want to assault them with words or yelling and intimidation. Or we might just hold a grudge, pretend like nothing happened, but tuck it away in a dark place in our heart. Whatever we do to refuse forgiveness, it reveals, that refusal reveals a lack of trust and a desire to be God ourselves. You see, if we refuse forgiveness, we're saying that we know better than God does how to punish this person. We're saying that, you know, Jesus dying on the cross was not quite enough. This person needs to pay a little bit as well. So we're essentially calling for injustice, for extra punishment rather than true justice when we refuse to forgive. We make ourselves out to be God with a little g when we refuse to forgive. 
So friends, pay attention to your forgiveness. Now, practically speaking, forgiveness is not immediate. It can take time to forgive. So we don't need to say, I forgive you too early. But we, we want to strive for honesty, saying, I want to forgive you. Please pray with me and for me that God will give me the strength to do it. Now, the final step in this process, step number four, is repeat. We see in verse four that Jesus says that if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and repents seven times, you must forgive him. There's repetition to this process, and we need to be repeating it over and over. Now, forgiveness is not a one-time thing. God God has called us to forgive often. As often as as someone comes to say, I repent. But I think the repeat here also includes that we forgive someone over and over throughout our lives. We're never done forgiving, just as God is never done forgiving. And we forgive because he forgave us. Now, we we might also need to forgive someone for the same hurt. Sometimes, many times, hurts are so deep that they still hurt even years later. And it might be that every day for the rest of your life, you're called to forgive someone who has hurt you. I mean a hurt from a long time ago, but it might be that every day you forgive them again, trusting God again to be just, to take care of what he has promised he will take care of in punishing all sin. Now, I do want to note, before we move on to the next point, I want to note that this is not a license or permission for us to sin and then expect or tell others to forgive us. We don't sin so that grace may abound, as Paul says. The command is for us to offer forgiveness, not to demand it of others. And this is not, also is not a call for someone to stay in an abusive situation, assuming that they must continue to forgive each time that they are abused in some way. So if you're being harassed or abused, bullied or hurt repeatedly by someone, if you're in a situation that could be identified or or understood as abusive um, or think you might be, please reach out to me or to Luke. We want to talk to you about that and help you with that. We are called to forgive, but we are not called to, always called to be in a situation that's continually abusive. Now, this command for us to rebuke, repent, forgive, and repeat, like all of God's commands, seems impossible for us to complete. How can I possibly forgive someone that has hurt me that bad? I want to, but how can I? Well, that brings us to our second point. Faith that moves trees. Faith that moves trees. We'll look at verse 5 and 6. 
The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here Luke tells us that the apostles now, this is the special group of 12 that Jesus has set aside for a special task. These apostles have come to Jesus and said, increase our faith. One commentator explains this phrase saying that essentially they're asking Jesus to help them to be faithful. They're saying, how can we be faithful? How can we remain faithful? Possibly looking at the commands just above. How can I forgive someone seven times in a single day? I need the faith to do that. They're just like us in that they are recognizing that they need God's power to be able to accomplish what Jesus has just commanded them to do. Now look at the way Jesus answers what they said in verse 6. He says, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He's speaking of a very small amount of faith. They've asked him to increase their faith, and he says, If you have just a little bit, a mustard seed is a very tiny seed. Even a mustard-sized faith, Jesus says, is capable of moving trees, of uprooting a tree. Now, uprooting a tree is incredibly difficult. I've tried to do this before, digging out roots from the ground of a tree that was cut down. This type of work is painful. I mean, it's digging and cutting and digging and cutting. And even when there's part of the root sticking up, it seems like, oh, this is small enough. I should be able to pull it out. It still does not come out. I mean, there are machines built, designed, and dedicated to pulling roots out of the ground. It's not something that a man just goes and, and does on a whim. This is a difficult task. So the point is that uprooting a mulberry tree is very difficult for someone to do. But Jesus says even a tiny-sized faith is enough to move this unmovable object. So what kind of faith is this? What, what is faith as he's talking about here? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance, being sure of something, and the conviction of things not seen, being dedicated, confident. So we could say that faith is being confident that Jesus is real, and what the Bible says about him is true. Faith is believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And notice how the answer that Jesus gives does not directly match their question. They're asking for more faith, and he says that small faith is very effective. It pairs well with Hebrews 12, where it talks about 
in, in Hebrews 12, it warns against the root of bitterness growing up and causing problems. If the bitterness of unforgiveness is like a root, then faith is the power from God to uproot that bitterness and extend forgiveness to others. So the point here is that we live out the all the things from point number one. And we live that out through the power that comes from faith in Jesus. So our faith is that power to live rightly, to forgive, and to avoid the temptations to sin. So the simple application from this point is that we should have our faith in God for the forgiveness of sins. We trust in God. We put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin. And we also have faith in Jesus to help us, to give us the power to forgive others because we have been forgiven. So when we walk in faith, no matter what size that faith is, we are to be obedient to God, which includes forgiving others when they sin against us. It's more about who our faith is in, where our faith is placed, that it's in Jesus Christ and Him alone, not in ourselves, that's important. More important than the size, but it's who it's, who it's based in. Now there's many much teaching out there that talks about having more faith, that we should have more faith and we would see extraordinary things happen. Crippled people getting up and walking. Maybe the lockdown would be shorter if we had more faith. Or maybe a, a dying relative would get better if we had but more faith. But we must be cautious of this more faith idea of striving for faith as if it's something like Guanxi. No, faith is in Jesus. It's in a person. It's not something that we accumulate for ourselves to use to make our life work. So be careful, just as we're paying attention to ourselves from the first point. I think one of these temptations to sin that come our way is to think that we must gather for ourselves some increase in faith so that we can do miraculous things or experience something. But that is not what God has called us to do. He's called us to have faith in Him, and even the faith the size of a mustard seed. Because it's His power that works in us. He is the one who is at work in us to forgive and to obey. Now, if we forgive others, if we do walk with God rightly, does He then give us something in return? Do we get a a prize, or some reward for obeying God. Let's look at how Jesus talks about that in verse 7 to 10. As we look at point number three for this morning. Point number three is serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Let's look at verse 7 again. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly 
and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Jesus completes this section speaking to the disciples and now addressing the apostles' question with this short parable or story about a servant and a master. The servant works in the field all day and comes in, then prepares food for the master and waits on him while the master eats. The servant does not come in and expect to be welcomed as a son or an honored guest. No, he has a job to do. He has a duty, and it's to work for the master. Jesus tells this story, and the the way he tells it, it seems as if those listening would agree that it would be strange for the servant to expect special treatment or a special award for simple obedience. They understood that the master was not obligated. He was not forced into or somehow needed to reward the servant who was doing what he was supposed to do. We see that in verse 9. Does, it says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And then verse 10 tells us, uh, tell, Jesus tells the, the apostles what they should say, how this applies to them. He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, unworthy here does not mean that they were worthless, but it means that they were not worthy of or they should not expect extra favor. They were not owed anything by doing what they were already signed up to do, what they were already supposed to be doing. Now, as Jesus was saying this, the the Pharisees were around. So he's directing this to the disciples and then the apostles. But we know from most of Luke that there's crowds around and others. So there was most likely Pharisees listening in to this as well. And Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees in this because he's said similar things to them already in the book of Luke. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were looking to, they wanted to look good on the outside. They wanted to follow God's law as they understood it so that God would give them reward, so that they would have favor with God, so that they could look good in front of others and that then God should owe them something. They're following his rules, so he should give them something good, right? That was their thinking. Think about it this way. If a friend gives you a ride to the airport in their car, you might thank him, maybe give him a hug, send him a gift later sometime for his inconvenience of driving you to the airport. But think about if you take a Didi to the airport, You might tell the driver bye, but you're not going to give him a hug or send him a gift later on. That would be really weird. And he's not expecting that. He did what he was supposed to do as a Didi driver. He gave you a ride, and that's what he's supposed to do. In a similar way, Jesus is saying that obedience 
does not obligate God to give a reward. The obedience that his people, uh, the, the way that his people obey by obeying is what we are supposed to do. This is the right thing for us to do, and it does not obligate God. He's not forced into giving us a reward. We should not expect some payment that now we deserve something of God because we have obeyed. Now, this section can seem somewhat like a contradiction compared to earlier chapters in Luke, especially when we read the parable of the two sons. The, in, the par- in that parable, the, the younger son squandered all his inheritance, came back to the father with the idea of being the father's servant. He wanted to be the servant, but the father welcomed him in, brought him into the feast, seated him at the best place of the table, and celebrated that his son was back. So how do we, and that points to, that younger son is, is like us believers who have, God has brought us to repentance. We've repented and he brings us into God's kingdom. But then how does that relate to this passage that says we should be unworthy servants? We have only done what was our duty. Are we sons and daughters or are we servants? Are we heirs or are we just doing our duty? Well, the first thing to consider is that When we see parables like this in the Bible, these pictures of God and his kingdom, they're small pictures of the whole thing. The only picture of God's kingdom that is complete and is is a perfect picture is God's kingdom itself. So we can see that Jesus is using parables to show us pieces of God's kingdom and of God himself. We can understand God because we get them in very small, bite-sized pieces in these parables and stories. Just as God has been revealing himself through history, but he's revealing himself in small parts, we know much more about God than Abraham did, and even than Moses did, because we have the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament. So as God reveals himself, then there is, it's a comprehensive, a, a better understanding of God's kingdom. So in this case, this parable, this story, is tied to loving others and to the command that we should forgive people who repent, as we saw in verse 4. And it's also going against the Pharisees' thinking that obedience makes God owe us something. It makes God give us a reward, like it's a, a, a peer-to-peer, like we're on the same level with God in some contract where I'll do this and you do this. But that's a misunderstanding of God. We should think more of obeying as a servant would obey, that we obey because God has brought us into his kingdom, not to obligate him, not to make him give us something. So we should not expect a big party because we forgave someone, but we should still forgive because we have been forgiven. And obedience, obeying God is the expectation that as his children, 
as those in his kingdom, as his ambassadors, then we are to look like our Father. We are to look like the kingdom that we come from, and that's his. So the expectation should be obedience, not a party because we obeyed. So we should not think of ourselves as servants in every way in God's kingdom, but as it relates to obedience, to forgiving people directly and other ways of obedience. We should think of ourselves as servants in that we are not owed something extra from God because we obey. We obey because he loves us and because we love him. So our application for point three is that we should serve God with a grateful heart not an expectant one. We should serve God with a grateful heart, being thankful. As we celebrate Easter today, we are thankful. We are worshiping and praising God because Jesus was raised from the dead. He is our hope and our salvation. And we are grateful. We are thankful that God has saved us. And because of that, we want to serve him. And we serve him, not expecting to pile on even more, or to do something else, or that now we have control over God, but we serve because he loves us, and he first loves us. Our goal is not to get things from God, but to get his approval, his pleasure, like we see in Matthew 25, where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is not earning extra favor, but it's being obedient to him. That is our goal. Now at the beginning of the sermon, I I quoted Jess's grandfather saying, where there's people, there's problems. And I hope you know that that may be true, but there's more to that in that with people, there's great joy in living out God's commands among his people. And this passage, we can see that We don't have to worry about or run from our problems or run from other people. But our faith in God helps us, equips us, gives us the power to love others and to serve God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, and we praise you for raising Jesus from the dead that we might have forgiveness of sins and a secure hope for eternity with you. We celebrate Christ's resurrection today as we do every Sunday. We pray that you would help us to love others, forgiving well, forgiving fully, and forgiving with faith, with the power of of Jesus in us. And help us, Lord, to serve you well this week, that we would serve you not expecting extra favor, but serving you out of gratitude and love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.